Welcome to the Climate Change Winners Podcast. This is your host, Devesh Tilokani, and on this podcast, we explore how entrepreneurship can play a vital role in the climate change space. Can entrepreneurship be the answer or one of the answers to fighting climate change? We're going to find that out by talking to entrepreneurs who are running businesses in the climate change space about their journeys, learnings, failures, tactics, lessons, and much more. So whether you're an aspiring entrepreneur, a current entrepreneur, or are just generally interested in the role that entrepreneurship plays in climate change, this podcast is for you. Thank you so much for listening, and let's get right into it. On this episode of the Climate Change Winners Podcast, we chat with Asan Syed, who is a multifaceted sustainability professional with knowledge and interest in clean technologies, energy carbonization, climate policy, circular economy, and sustainability integration in corporate strategy. Now, Essen currently works as a contractor for various clean technology companies between Canada and the UK, helping companies reduce emissions in hard-to-decarbonize sectors using green hydrogen. So in this episode, we really dive deep into how Essen started his own sustainability career, surprisingly, in the oil and gas sector, Um, why green hydrogen is a massive catalyst in the road to net zero, and then breaking out the science behind green hydrogen's role in reducing carbon emissions. And finally, we also discussed something that was really interesting, was how personal wellness and climate change are connected. That kind of, that was a really interesting part of it. And of course, the green hydrogen aspect as well. Essen dropped some insane value throughout the episode. Uh, So I'm really excited if you listen to this. One thing I always ask, as always, Please, 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 after listening to this, take some action, the smallest action possible. It can be something as simple as reaching out to someone in your space um, to kind of get started on your climate change journey, or it could be um, reading a book. It could be anything, but just take some action after listening to this episode. As always, thank you. Thank you so much for listening, and let's get right into it. Thank you, thank you so much, Ed, for coming on the Climate Change Winners Podcast, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, happy to be here. Awesome, awesome. So I know you want to take it right away to the starting about your journey. Like, how did you even get involved in the sustainability space in the first place? Yeah, so that's it's a bit of a fluffy story of how I got into it. But essentially, I was in second year university, and I was sitting in environmental sciences, and I was walking through halls one day and I came across this poster with the mountains and this river valley and it said you know you can study here and at that point I'd just been a big city Toronto kid my whole life never been in the back country but then I thought okay well if they've got scholarships available and I can go get courses out uh, west then might as well sign up for it and so I'd applied and got in and it was a six-week experiential learning program through Green Learning Canada at the University of Victoria and they basically took you in the back country for six weeks and you lived out of a bag. You spent six days canoeing and portaging along along a lake and then hiked up a glacier at one point. And so, you know, spending six weeks with 20 random people from across the country in the back country made me realize how important, you know, natural landscapes. Are. But also it, 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 it invoked this deeper kind of feeling inside of me that I'd never experienced in a city before. And it made me realize at that point that, you know, we shouldn't protect nature for the fear of the consequences of destroying it, but it is genuinely ingrained part of humanity and it kind of grounds us and centers us. And since that experience, I've 
you know, every year or every couple of months, take an effort to go on a big hike or completely unplug out for a couple of days. And it's, and it's been really helpful in keeping me sane as a person. So that's, that's where the, the, the big passion behind the environmental and conservation movement started. And then when I'd gone back to school and gone into Ivy, I basically took the helms of the Ivy Sustainability Club, started preaching the good word, and then got involved through that with Tima Benzel, who's one of the leading kind of research chairs on corporate sustainability. And she introduced me to a lot of folks from her network and really I started learning and, and developing my skills in that space. And then, you know, things just snowball one to another and lead to other opportunities. That's amazing, man. It's amazing. And maybe going back to sort of when you said that you were in nature, do you think that a big part of that was changing your relationship with what you basically call nature? I, I guess, I guess like in the city, you know, a lot of people like to spend time sitting in their backyard or going to a park, but like raw nature where you where it's just deathly quiet and you can't hear anything, you can't see anybody other than just the, the trees and the birds and you have no signal. So you can't just distract yourself and you're just forced to just be in this environment. I think it invokes some prehistoric part of us as humans where, you know, your alertness just goes through the roof and, and you have to, you're hyper aware and sensitive to the space around you. Because prehistoric humans, you know, when they were in the natural environment, if they weren't fully alert, they get eaten or, or die. And so living in the city and being around people and always kind of feeling stable and safe and comfortable gets rid of that. But when you're in that environment, it kind of comes back and it's, and it's really refreshing. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's really interesting that you mentioned that. And I'm sure there's like a wellness component to that for yourself as well, overall, mentally and physically both, I'm guessing. Yeah. 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 Maybe moving from there, I know that after you left university, you moved first straight away into the oil and gas sector. Sort of, yeah. I guess, how was that experience kind of going into a sector that maybe you didn't agree with completely? Yeah. And a lot of my friends made fun of me for it. I was known as Mr. Sustainability at Ivy. And they said, you know, you sold your soul and went to the dark side. Part of that was, I guess I was really naive as a young person. I thought I'd be able to bring them down from the inside when I joined the company. Yeah. But also when I was graduating from Ivy, I'd tried desperately to find a job in social impact or climate change or sustainability more broadly. And every time I'd have conversations, people would either want to pay me barely anything at all, or in some cases take an unpaid internship, or uh, a lot of the roles were almost admin and, and events organization roles. And, you know, coming out of Ivy where the average graduate makes close to $60,000 a year, you know, you're not due five years of schooling because I did the double degree when I'm at the sciences and, and learn so much and then just kind of push papers around first year out. So I'd, I'd kind of done the typical thing that most Ivy kids do is kind of spray my resume across a whole bunch of different sectors of uh, and areas and ExxonMobil really liked it and came back and during the interview process they said that they are really open to, to to people with different interests and skill sets to come in and they were paying me really well I'd never seen never seen so many so many numbers you know even still in so a lot of the roles that I'm applying for but so I took that on and honestly it was a really good learning opportunity they put me in a training program for six months right when I joined. It was a business development focus role on industrial lubricants. And so you learn everything about the upstream oil and gas industry, the chemical sector. You learn about how to develop a pipeline of, of, of business opportunities. And then right after that training program, they handed me a pipeline of accounts 
close to 20, 25 million dollars in Northern Alberta. So as a, you know, a 22, 23 year old coming out of school and getting to do all this stuff, it was a great way to, to start my career. So, so no regrets. And I think it definitely helped the experience that I, that I had there. Because when you're kind of a young kid and you're interested in something, no one really takes you seriously until you say that, okay, well, I've done one year of work experience with this big company and I've got, you know, good school behind me. And then people start to perk up and actually take you seriously. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm guessing maybe at the Exxon when you were there, I'm sure you had your own ideas about sustainability. So when you put them forward, were they accepted or were they just kind of like shunned or how was that experience? I guess. Yeah. And, and I guess things would maybe be a little different now, but at the time that was one of the reasons I didn't last there for too long is Exxon for the longest time has been resistant to any change, even though they invented climate science. It was their scientists and engineers that discovered that CO2 was a greenhouse gas and they were warming the planet probably 40 years ago. And then Exxon basically fired those scientists, but those scientists ended up publishing the studies anyway. It's a really interesting story. There's a whole book about it. But they spent the following 20, 30 years funding a climate denial movement. So the corporate culture almost has their head in the sand, where even if you try to bring up climate change and, you know, put people in the corner, they would just kind of shut down and say, this is paying my bills. This is my livelihood. I can't talk against it or even like entertain the idea. This, this movement could completely bring down my industry and company. So, so people took, took it very personally. So, so a lot of times I couldn't talk about climate change. Otherwise I would just not make friends. And, and it was a big, it was a big source of discomfort during my time there. And, you know, I would, I would talk about it a lot with my managers and it, it actually ended up getting me laid off my position. Yeah. Cause I had, I had started to talk to other directors in the company and they wanted to pull me in their team, but then my team had invested a lot into my training and then it got into corporate politics, yeah, yeah. which was a humbling experience. Yeah, man. And I can imagine at the age of like 23, 24, when you're at that at position and you sort of see that at a pretty young age from there, maybe I guess, where did you find yourself? Like, what was that regeneration to find, I guess, hydrogen and the kind of the work that you're doing right now that in between yeah. phase of 23, 24, sort of what was it self-discovery first? Yeah. And at the time I was really upset because, you know, you, you, you're really excited to work with this big company, making good money, graduate from a good school. And then someone basically tells you that they don't want you, but it was the best thing that could have happened because it gave me a three month severance. So I essentially had three months to go out and find the, the job that I wanted to do. Calgary at the time and Alberta as a whole was going through a recession because of the oil market collapse. So no one really was hiring or, or wanted to talk to me. But then the Canadian government has a number of wage subsidy programs. So there's the Eco Canada Scholarship, Canada Green Corps program, the STIP one that's facilitated through a lot of universities as well. And so I basically got got one of these subsidies and they had companies that they could pair you up with. But then they also said, you know, you can go find your own job. So I started networking heavily and basically said in the meeting, hey, this is who I am. I don't really know much about this job, but here's a track record of success with other things. And you don't have to pay me for four months. So you've got nothing to lose, you know, give me a shot. If I suck, no harm done. If I'm good, you, you keep me on. 
And so that completely changed the conversation with a lot of these people. And so instead of them awkwardly saying, oh, you know, we're not hiring, a lot of them said, oh, well, I've got work you can do, jump you through the hoops of the HR process and, and get you on the team. So that started happening with some of the big companies, the Suncors, TransCanada's, which are some of the more forward thinking companies. They already had sustainability departments, but it was another Ivy grad that I had a, a coffee chat with. And he basically said, you know, we've, we've started this consulting company and we're starting to get a lot of clients. And we could use, you know, young, hungry talent. And especially if we don't have to pay you, then that's great for us because we're a startup. And so he pretty much gave me an offer within two, three days. And he liked the fact that I'd worked in the oil and gas industry because most of their clients were oil and gas clients. So that it was my role at Exxon that directly helped me get that job. And it was, you know, breathing from a fire hose for the first three, four months. But that's where I developed most of my expertise. And the guy that the guy just really liked me. You know, he was one of those guys like Ivy through. And so he, he just assumes that anyone that graduates from Ivy is a smart person and, and they can just be thrown in the deep end. So he'd put me in front of clients on, you know, C, C-suite executives. I wanted to, that knew nothing about carbon levies or carbon tax or climate change. And then you had to kind of talk your way through it. So I learned fairly quickly, helped Numerous companies do a carbon footprint of their of their corporate operations, worked on some policy for methane regulations and, and emissions regulations in the oil and gas sector, worked on carbon market design and carbon offset generation. So that's where I where I really started to uh, upscale myself in the in the climate change and environmental. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. That's incredible. And for anyone that doesn't know, by Ivy, we're referring to the Ivy Business School in Canada, because we have some listeners that are from across the world as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. From there, I guess, where did the interest in hydrogen start? That's sort of where you're currently focused at, at least. Yeah. So, I mean, the story the story goes on. Basically, I worked at CampOp Energy, which was the consulting company that the alumni had had started. That went on for two years. And then a lot of the work that I was doing, I packaged it up into some scholarship applications, got a scholarship to LSE. So I moved out to London and... Right before I'd moved out there, I started working on waste energy projects. So essentially taking organic waste and food waste and turning it into renewable diesel or biodiesel. And it, and it got me thinking, because I, I thought, well, why do we landfill anything? You know, if this technology exists, then we should be turning all our garbage into, into fuels. So when I got to LSC, I started thinking about this for my thesis. And the more I thought about it and the more conversations I had, I realized that it doesn't make sense to turn your waste into fuels, because if you can monetize the waste, then you're almost incentivized to produce more waste. And, and even turning that into fuels is, is a net production of, of carbon dioxide. So you're not, you know, you're, you're polluting a lot along that process. And then the waste hierarchy kind of came into my life. And I started doing some work with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, which is one of the global resources on circular economy. So got really interested in circular economy and plastics and tried to start a business, melding my old world and carbon markets and carbon offsets to plastics and almost trying to create a plastic offset idea. That was short-lived, but it allowed me to get an internship with McKinsey's spin-out, McKinsey's sustainability practice spin-out in, in London. Called That was probably one of the coolest companies I'd ever worked for. But they couldn't keep me on, so I ended up leaving there and getting a job as a climate change consultant at ERM, which is Environmental Resource Management, one of the largest pure play consulting companies in the world. All of these things were through networking, by the way. I'd never applied for any of these jobs. Yeah. Just leveraged the experience that I had before from CapOp to get into systemic, the systemic and CapOp to get into ERM. And all these companies know each other and know the work. 
And so worked at ERM for about a year until I got absolutely sick and tired of working for a large corporation. Because at the time I had, I had been working for a smaller consulting company and actually leading the projects and managing the clients. And then ERM had all these corporate rules, which said, you're in this position, you're this young, so you can't manage these projects and manage these clients. I basically got at this point where I thought I've got a big enough network. I can go out, win these own with these clients myself, save them money and pay myself twice as much you give me. May have been really arrogant at the time, but you know, you gotta be bold. And so the hydrogen thing was, was very lucky. Basically while I was at when I had moved to London, I had connected to this lady who was Canadian, but was working on the climate change. And we had a couple of chats. And then when I joined ERM, she had moved back to Vancouver to work with this hydrogen startup. And then she called me out of the blue one day and said, hey, are you still looking for a side hustle? Our uh, financial modeler has left and we need to build a corporate finance model. Never built a corporate finance model point in my life, yeah. but obviously I said yes. And so I started working with them two, three days a week. And that was a hydrogen based startup, learning a lot about hydrogen. And then around that time, hydrogen industry started boosting up. And so I had other calls with other friends and said, hey, I'm doing this side gig with this company now. They focus on hydrogen. And this other friend was said, oh, I know another company that's looking for a subcontractor for, and they're focused on hydrogen. So I got that gig again, like a couple of hours. And then I thought, oh my God, I think I might be onto something. So I basically packaged up these experiences and blasted my network and those two contracts turned to five. And then I eventually quit ER. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. So I'm guessing, how did you, cause that's a masterclass in networking right there. So maybe how did you like open up those conversations with different, different type of people, especially when you were maybe at the starting of that? Cause I think a lot of young individuals, at least they can struggle with the idea of networking can seem quite cliche or quite like networking. The word by itself can have a negative connotation sometimes. So yeah. how did you kind of open up those conversations? Yeah. And and, you know, I was really bad at networking. When I first started, I get so nervous. I was afraid of looking stupid. And some of that confidence kind of builds as you yourself feel confident about your experiences and, and, and kind of use, give yourself self-esteem and courage. So, so I'd say like the, the, the starting point of networking is not to create a power imbalance is if you are networking for the sole purpose of getting a job, then that's not really networking. That's just you kind of almost being in a desperate situation. So, so my approach is just to kind of learn about what the other person is doing and what their company is doing and have a conversation with, with somebody as if you'd go to an event, right? A lot of people, if you go to a conference or an event, you're going to have a chance encounter with someone and try to just like have a normal casual conversation. So that that's most of the time I've just used, used that excuse. It's like, you know, I want to learn about what circular economy is or how the waste hierarchy works. So I'm going to look for these people or look for the people that work at the NGOs that are active in this space. And then, and then when you talk to one person about something you want to, about a specific area, they'll reveal insights like a regulation or a big massive project. And you take that insight in your next meeting in your next meeting, you'll say, Hey, I was talking to Sarah from EMF and yeah. she said, this is happening. And immediately you've got credibility, right? Cause that person is thinking, I thought this was just some kid that didn't know anything, but <laughs> not only does he know the EMF, he knows about these regulations. So now I'm going to introduce him to somebody else because you know, he he's legitimate. And then once you, once you develop and, and establish that legitimacy, then you get to know the circle fairly quick. And then when, when you know the circle, then you can ask the right questions to position yourself in the right opportunities. 
Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was super interesting. Cause I mean, that's something that I think myself and a lot of other 22 year olds or like fresh grads try to struggle with establishing their legitimacy. Cause like for someone like myself, I don't have a lot of experience in the space, but I'm curious, but if I can kind of tie those threads with each other and move on, I think it could help me or anyone else that is in that space, you know? Yeah. And, and the other thing I, w- I would also say is when you're starting out, not to book meetings with anyone too senior, because I've been burned by that a couple of times. Yeah. I'd book the meeting without having a clear objective on what that meeting was about. And if, you know, if you're a director or a C-suite executive in a large company and you're just going from meeting to meeting, and then you get this meeting in your calendar because someone else has, had introduced you and you don't have an objective or like a clear direction for that meeting, then you'll just get blasted. Most of the time, they'll politely, you know, hurry you through the conversation and end the conversation in 10, 15 minutes. And in some cases where someone really gets pissed off or someone just wants to teach you a lesson, teach you a lesson in a nice way. Like it was an actual, it was actually an Ivy grad that had blasted me one time. Wow. He said, you know, normally I would just ignore this and, and not engage. But then I think this is a good learning lesson for you because I feel like I wasted my time. But I, I learned from that so much. And now I never, you know, usually I, I start every conversation with, hey, really appreciate you taking this time. This is what I want to get out of this conversation. It clears the air immediately. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's anything, like even like something as simple as a sales call, if you're not going to set an agenda at the starting and you got a prospect coming on, he's going to be like, what the fuck are we going to talk about? Like, he's like, I have no idea. There's no roadmap for us to follow basically, you know? So yeah, I think that that's super important. And I've, I think I've, there's been a couple of times that I've gone on podcast intro calls where I got introduced to someone else through someone. And when I got on the call, they had no idea it was for a podcast thing and they thought I was trying to sell them something. So they had their defenses up. And then as soon as I was like, yo, I'm not trying to sell you something. I'm trying to get you in a podcast. They're like, oh shit. Like I was going to cancel on you because I thought you were trying to sell me. Yeah. 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 So having that kind of agenda set in place can definitely, definitely help. And so really appreciate that advice. But yeah, moving on more to like segueing from this into hydrogen as a whole, just for someone like, let's say we're talking like hydrogen for dummy, you know, like how does that, how, like, let's say I have no experience at all in that space. Maybe how would you explain to someone like me, how that contributes to net zero as a whole? Okay. Okay. So, so hydrogen is a combustible gas. So similar to natural gas, propane and other gases that are out there. And it's the most energy dense gas that's out there from a, from a mass basis, but from a volumetric basis, it's, it's, it's very light. So the way to describe that essentially is if you've got one kilogram of hydrogen versus one kilogram of, of natural gas, the kilogram of hydrogen is more valuable but the kilogram of hydrogen is, is very light. So it's, it's really hard to kind of compress it into a singular space. So essentially it's a, it's a really good source of, source of energy that you can combust it, or you can use it in a fuel cell, which is combining it with oxygen to make water, which produces, which produces energy. So the benefit of it is when you combust it or when you combine it with oxygen to, to make water, it only produces water vapor. So there's no emissions and you can produce it by splitting the water into hydrogen and oxygen to make, to, to make, to make hydrogen, but you need to put, okay, let me restart. You put energy into water and split it to make hydrogen. And then when they come back together, you get energy out. So it's a fully circular fuel in a sense. So it makes sense to essentially replace all of our fossil fuels with hydrogen. Now, a lot of people are saying, well, no, we should use electricity because why would you take electricity turn it into hydrogen and then use the hydrogen for energy where you can just use the electricity. But the issue is our electrical grid infrastructure is so unstable 
that if you were to transition everything to electricity, including heating, power, and transport, you would you would you would need a complete overhaul of the electrical system, and then you would need to install massive amounts of battery systems, which are really costly, right? So to give you an example, uh, a Tesla truck, for for example, has a one megawatt battery. Now to sorry, not one megawatt. I think it's got a five one megawatt hour. Yeah, one megawatt hour battery. Now, if you wanted to charge that in 20 minutes, you would need to a two megawatt electric vehicle charger. Now, to have two megawatts drawn from one specific spot, you would need probably like 10, 20 million dollars of grid infrastructure upgrades, right? Because one building, one building would only draw five kilowatts. And so to put upgrade that to two megawatts, it's almost like a thousand thousand percent, right? Or yeah, thousand percent increase. Yeah. So a lot of people don't think about think about this is like the complete overhaul of the electricity system that would be needed. And the electrical system is already so unstable. You look at the power blackouts that have power outages that happen in California and, and Germany because they scaled up renewables too fast. Um, so one alternative is to just take all this intermittent renewable power from, from wind and solar and generate hydrogen and then ship that hydrogen around because you can't easily just ship electricity around. The other issue is in a lot of places around the world, you just don't have good availability of renewables. So you look at Canada, for example, on the on the coasts in, in BC and Quebec and Manitoba, you've got crazy amounts of hydro. And on the on the Atlantic provinces, you have the capability of crazy offshore in southern Alberta, you've got lots of solar. But then for all other areas of the country, you don't you don't have good availability of, of renewable power to be able to generate that. And in other places like Iceland, for example, they've got geothermal, but Greenland doesn't doesn't have a good way to renewable energy. So the only way, and Japan is another country, right? They just have such little land mass that for them to be able to power their whole economy on renewables, it's almost impossible. Yeah. So Japan is looking at other countries and trying to import as much hydrogen as it can because it's the only way that they're going to completely reduce their emissions. Yeah. Yeah. And have you seen certain parts of the world taking up to hydrogen a lot more faster than others? Yeah. So, so Europe is definitely leading in this space. The European Union has a hydrogen strategy. The UK is set to establish a hydrogen strategy. A lot of the venture capital funding is going towards hydrogen startups in Europe. The, the U.S. is starting to catch with the new Biden administration. They're currently working on a hydrogen strategy. Canada is trying to do that as well. They did release a hydrogen strategy. It's not very clear. And then there's also a battle of the provinces. So Alberta wants to take natural gas and reform that into hydrogen. I guess I should have mentioned this earlier is you can get hydrogen from water, but it's a little bit more expensive to do so. Traditionally, to produce hydrogen, people had been taking methane from natural gas, which is, and taking the C away, which leaves you the H4, and then emitting the C in the terms, in the form of dioxide. But there's a lot of carbon capture projects where you can have these massive plants that reform natural gas and hydrogen, but you capture the carbon and basically dig it underground and you sequester it. The science is still out, whether carbon capture and storage really works um, and whether that carbon dioxide stays underground. So a lot of people and environmentalists try to try to say that, you know, this doesn't make any sense. And so in Canada, you've got Alberta and Saskatchewan who are saying, you know, we need to protect the natural gas industry and make blue hydrogen. And then Quebec, BC, Ontario kind of doesn't have a stance on it, but most of the other provinces that are saying, no, we need to just produce hydrogen from renewable energy and, and water because that's the only long-term sustainable solution. Yeah. yeah. And maybe 
yourself? Which which sort of camp do you fall in yourself? You know, I, I think blue hydrogen can enable hydrogen economy in the short term. There's a lot of structural challenges in the supply chain of hydrogen. So compressing it, storing it, getting it to a to a place where you can use it, hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. One of the things that's holding them back is the limited apply of supply of fuel and electrolyzers, which are used, which basically split the water into, into hydrogen oxygen. They require a lot of specialty metals and there's a global shortage of these metals. It'll take a while for, for them to kind of scale up that availability, but the broader hydrogen economy and supply chain can't wait for that. So I think distributed blue hydrogen projects are a, are a transition to enabling the broader hydrogen economy, which will have to be green. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. No, I think that it, it, it's something that definitely needs more attention, the hydrogen side of things. And also, if I'm not mistaken, there's the blue hydrogen side, but there's also the green hydrogen side as well, yeah? Yeah, yeah. so the green green is basically using renewable energy and yeah. splitting water to make hydrogen and blue, reforming natural gas and then capturing the carbon and using yeah. it for a special. So for the short-term purpose, a little bit of blue hydrogen as well, certain projects to hopefully transition towards green in the, in the long term. Yeah, and I'll give you an example of this in practice. So right now, through some of the companies that I've been working with, we've got clients that say right now they're using, for a construction site, for example, they're using a diesel power generator. And there is a hydrogen power generator, but to be able to get hydrogen to that site, which, which they can do now, there's just no supply of green hydrogen. So do they wait three years until there's a big electrolyzer plant that goes in? Or do they just buy hydrogen from a BP down the road and to just prove out the technology? Same thing is happening for hydrogen powered boilers for heating solutions in industrial facilities, fuel cell electric vehicles. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's really interesting. You suggest anyone that's more interested in this space, like a certain book or a resource that they should definitely check out to get more sort of heads down into the hydrogen space? Just subscribe to updates from the Hydrogen Council. H2View is, is an application that does this. If you're based in Canada, there's the Canadian Hydrogen Fuel Cell Association. The UK, there's a UK Hydrogen Fuel Cell Association. Just start following the industry groups, following the government departments. And then once you start reading these updates, then all these other kind of like companies and, and, and people will start, you know, coming your way. And, you know, if you want, like follow my posts on LinkedIn, I post about this stuff all the time. Shameless plug. You'll definitely put the links to that as well. One question I always like to ask at the end of a conversation is, let's say you're a 22 year old and you, ha- you have been there recently and you're just graduated from university. You want to get into the entrepreneurial space and the climate change space specifically. I mean, what's one practical step you can take right after this podcast to like at least start yourself on that journey? Well, you know, entrepreneurship isn't for everybody. So I'd say first, you know, try to figure out whether ship is something that you can do. You know, some people need to just make money after they graduate to pay off student loans or to just survive. And and other people just don't have the skill set, right? Like it's a lot of up and down and some people don't want that volatility. So that's the first piece, the first question. And then the second question is, if you do want to become an entrepreneur, do you, have you identified a very specific interest in a specific area that you want to tackle, right? You don't, you don't start with the idea that you want to be an entrepreneur and then start go looking for it. I, I think you can, it's a little harder, but I think the other way is easier if you get really excited and pumped up about one thing and decide, okay, find the opportunity in this space. Because then you're going from an insight-driven approach to entrepreneurship rather than, you know, this idea that, oh, entrepreneurial stuff is sexy or cool. Because it's, it's, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of heartache and, you know, a lot of struggle. So you as might as well love 
what you're doing if you're if you're gonna go through that struggle yeah 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 and definitely especially in the current we live in it can kind of be glamorized just kind of being realistic about it and if you're actually passionate to actually want to solve a problem then go ahead and do it don't just be an entrepreneur just for the sake of it that's advice that i've gotten yeah 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 definitely Essen, this was amazing i just want to say thank you thank you so much first of all i learned a lot myself from the conversation and excited for the listeners to learn as well second question is just tell us where our listeners could potentially find you and connect with you yeah so i'd say linkedin is probably the best bet i do have twitter i don't really tweet that much anymore maybe that'll change prize that it's still going strong to be honest but yeah mainly mainly just linkedin and, and twitter amazing amazing definitely put those links below and again asin thanks a lot for coming on i really appreciate it thanks this was fun thank you so much for listening to the climate change preneurs podcast really really hope you enjoyed that episode now i personally always love hearing back from listeners whether that's feedback or general comments so feel free to connect uh, across with me on linkedin you can find me on linkedin at Devesh Tilokani, D-E-V-E-S-H-T-I-L-O-K-A-N-I. Please let me know if I can help out in any way, whether that's something as simple as connecting you across with a guest you're interested in connecting with or feedback or in any other way possible. Again, thank you so much for listening and keep killing it in your climate change journey.